<coughs> All And welcome to episode 116 of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Land. And I am Kayla Moria. And we are a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. Kayla, I haven't seen you in forever. It's been so long. So long. I was gone. I know. We recorded three episodes in one week. I know. That was a lot. It was a lot. At yeah. the end of the... Well, I think, actually, I think Sean might have told you this when we saw each other before we left. Um... I left the last one. The last one we did was with Kim. Yeah. And it was so much fun. Right. But when I got home, I just looked at Sean. I'm like, I'm so, I'm so tired of talking. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad this is the last one for this week because I'm so sick of talking. And (laughs) which Uh, is not a phrase anybody has ever heard me say. No, no. I know my my voice because what was it what was it before that was it the Aqua Affair yeah the weekend before that and so we also went to Ides after that mm-hmm. and so like my voice while editing was so like I could hear how raspy <laughs> it was because of all of the talking after going to a concert and these loud loud <laughs> things and just so much talking and then I had to do my radio show and I'm just like hi guys hi <laughs> hi everyone. <laughs> So I went to Vegas. Yes. How was it? Warm? It was not very warm. Oh. It was like 55 degrees. Well, warmer than here. Yeah. And that that was for a work conference about, you know, managers in corporate world, blah, 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 blah. A lot of good, interesting information. Not a lot of time for fun. No, no. Did did your coworkers make you go to the haunted museum? No. No, they did not. There did, wasn't there wasn't even time to go if we had wanted to. Oh, well that kind of yeah, that's that's better. But when they brought it up, I was like, "Eh, no, we don't give money to, to Baggins." <laughs> Thanks for thinking of me because they genuinely they'd mentioned it. They were genuinely thinking of me. Right. None of them wanted to go. Right. But I appreciate that they're like, like Kayla likes spooky shit. Yep, exactly. Maybe we could go here. And then after we flew back on Wednesday from Vegas, yeah. They dropped me off at my friend's house in Minneapolis uh-huh. and where Sean met me. Uh-huh. We left his vehicle there and immediately drove to Austin, Texas. Wait, you drove to Texas? Yeah. Oh, I thought you flew. No, it's only 18 hours. It's fine. Oh, that's not bad at all. No, that's a very Midwest thing. Yeah, I have a I have no concept of driving across the country. Like, why would I fly? It's just an 18-hour drive. Like, that's a very Midwest thing. I mean, yeah, but you get to see stuff along the way. (laughs) Not all that much. It's just 35 the whole way down. Literally, 35 starts here in Duluth and goes immediately. Like, you follow that the whole way down to Texas. Hmm. But. Hmm. But you could stop along the way. We could have. We did. We did uh, not on the way down. We just traded off driving. Yeah. Got there. (gasps) Immediately got to. Like, see the Gina Gleason? Yay. 
uh, because it was Gina and Kevin's wedding. Yay! Congratulations, Gina and Kevin. Congratulations. How was it? It was so gorgeous. They did such a good job. Like, it was smaller, Mm -hmm. but it had, like, all the feel of a big wedding. Mm -hmm. Um. So the first night we were first day we were there, uh, helped Gina with the floral arrangements. Went to this awesome place for food called Laura. The next day, uh, there was the rehearsal dinner, more good food, and then the wedding. There was tons of good food. I'm my, my vacation center around food. I mean, most of mine do as well. Yeah, I I think that when I got back from San Diego, I was like, oh my god, the margaritas and the enchiladas, <laughs> yo, what? And so the wedding was amazing. Gina and Kevin are just so fucking sweet. It's cute how fucking cute. It's it's sickeningly cute. It makes me so happy. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then on our way back, we split up the drive. We yep. stopped and stayed at the Elms again, where I was, again, not visited by any ghosts. God, you just have zero luck. I want it too bad. Uh, you want yes, yes. I think that's it. I think you just have to stop wanting it so bad. How do I stop? How do I stop, Brittany? Just accept it. Accept it as your fate. <laughs> the fate of the unhaunted. The fate of the unhaunted. <laughs> um, and then, and then we got home. It was great, and now we're and now I'm here. That's awesome. So it was a very good trip. Thank you for all that you did. For letting me be able to do this without having to worry about podcast stuff. Oh, no worries whatsoever. It was it was nice. And I got to figure out some ad stuff. Yes, we have new ads. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I, uh, yeah. Uh, sorry about the the episode with Kim that the, the outro starts playing during our still talking. <laughs> Although Steve said it was funny because it almost seemed like because it was such a long episode that we were like being like, like, like ushered off of yeah, the ushered Oscars. Off of the same, yeah, they're like, go, 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 go. Why are you still talking? You, you're done. Just keep going. <laughs> we're, that the, was my bad. <laughs> where we are so busy talking that we usher ourselves off yeah. the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to make it like 90 seconds shorter. <laughs> <Just>. <laughs> um, I did want to tell you one more thing about the old episodes. So if you remember in the episode that came out last week mm-hmm. where you were in Flagstaff. Yes. I figured out what I was thinking of. Okay. If you remember, I was like, Flagstaff, what, why is that so yeah. in there? And it's not Flagstaff that I was thinking of. In my brain, I was hearing the word Flagstaff, but I was hearing it in the tone of Whipstaff oh. from Casper. Got so, it. Okay, 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 okay. Yes. That makes sense. I was like, I really, because I had thought about that a few times too. I was like, I don't know. I don't know what else is like would happen in right. Flagstaff. Right. So it's Whipstaff Manor is the house yes. where Christina Ricci met Casper. And, you know, both of them are haunted. Yeah. So that fits. Um, except for, you know, in Whipstaff, there is a adorable Devin Sawa. Oh, I know he's such a cutie patootie, but I just I had to put that in my notes yep. to tell you because it was bugging me. <laughs> yeah. And then it came into my brain. I was like, Casper. And I Googled Casper. it and I was like, oh, they were not in Arizona. Whipstaff, not Flagstaff. Whipstaff. Whipstaff. Is that what is that on the East Coast? I think so. Something like that. Yeah, because it's in Maine. 
Yes. Friendship lots of, Maine. Lots of spooky stuff in Maine. Just yeah. ask Stephen King. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he knows. Yeah. He knows. He, he writes about it, you know. <laughs> By the way, he's delightful to follow on Twitter. I love following Stephen King on Twitter. Oh, he's so great. So Stephen King and... Bye-bye, Venus. <laughs> that scared me. <laughs> I was like, what is that? My Venus to Mars poster just came flying at me. <laughs> oh, I will have some stories that I'm researching. There was a place I stopped in called The Tavern in Austin that mm-hmm. I visited, and that's supposed to be very haunted. But uh, this week I had a listener request, so I'm, I'm going to push that out, and I'm going to try to find a Vegas location that isn't <laughs> haunted museum. The haunted museum. So I'm pretty sure there are a lot of them. There were a lot of uh, gangsters in Vegas, yeah. mobsters, mobsters. Yeah. I just wanted to mention because I feel like when I go on trips, I normally come back and I'm like, I'm covering this location. Yeah, not this week, but I, that's well, coming this one up. you had done before, exactly, and you had mentioned it. Got it. I guess though, the biggest question that I have for you, Kayla, did you see Jensen Eccles? No, and I went. Twice. Twice, and he wasn't In there. In a three-day period, jam-packed with activities and things I needed to do, I went to Family Business Brewing Company, which is a 40-minute drive away from where our verbal <laughs> was. I went to- So you spent 160 minutes back and forth <laughs> trying to see Jensen Ackles. <laughs> I did not. But you know what? Aww. I got some good beer. That's, I mean, that's all we can really hope for, I guess. I collected some acorns, oh, live oak mm-hmm. acorns. I mm-hmm. got some live oak twigs to make some, like, little witchy amulet protection things with. Love that, love that. Uh, no, Jensen. I will find you, Jensen. And I was so, because we got that email from Kim, and it had a picture of her with Padalecki, and I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm this gonna, is the sign. This is the sign. No, it was not the sign. Uh, but the staff there, even, like, even though they weren't Jensen, shout out. The uh, the staff at Family Business Brewing Company, beautiful, amazing people. Ugh. Well, I mean, they have to be. They have to be. They have love, to be. I, I, and I, they were. I did not have a bad interaction with anybody. Oh, I love that. I love that. So how are you doing? I am processing. Okay. Okay. Um, for those of you who are not local, or even for those of you who are local, this is the Sunday after um, my friend Dee passed away, Afro Geode. We've talked about her on the podcast before. She mm-hmm. was amazing. That's all that we've. That's yeah. all that you would know about her if you weren't from around here. Um, but really, that's all you need to know about her. So yeah, she she passed away unexpectedly on Monday, and it's been a lot of back and forth this week. Yeah. Of trying to just focus on on things and figuring out what to do next. I don't know. I don't know. The one thing I w- I will say is like I mean obviously this is everybody loved D mm-hmm. and one thing that has come of this is we are finding out exactly how many pe- how many people love D even people that met her once. Yes. I've seen a lot of stories where somebody's like Somebody posted, you know, I met Dee once at this thing that the college that she worked at. Yep. And she's like, everybody else kind of just passed me by. But Dee had an engaging conversation with me and made me really feel heard. Like, that's the type of person Dee was. Yeah, she was She was very mindful of everything. She yep. was so thoughtful. She was so smart. And so, yeah, she's 
definitely going to be missed. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm probably not going to talk about it too much. Legit. But yeah. We all process in different ways. You, you process. We process. We all process. Yeah, we all process. I generally tend to process more uh, inner. There have been some really, really beautiful articles shared about her, though. So, you know, Duluth News Tribune. Yes. The Current shared a really nice one as well. But, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, just kind of getting through the week. Well, if we're going to get through the week, we're, we're, we're going to uh, just keep trucking. Just got to keep on trucking. So if we're going to keep trucking, should I truck right along with the story? Yeah, but we do have an ad first. Oh. Crack into it. And we're back. So we had a listener request from Sarah this week for a cryptid known as the Black Shuck. Hmm. I Hmm. had never heard of this specific Hmm. term. It kind of sounds familiar. But I don't know where from or what it is, or maybe I'm just making that up in my head, like Flagstaff versus Whipstaff. Yep. And once we get into it, you'll know, like, because you, like, we've all heard of this if you're at all into cryptids. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just, it's an area specific term for okay. it. Okay. So the Black Shuck is a dog like beast of legend told across England, but especially in the East England folklore. As with quite a few of the cryptids and folklore we've covered on the podcast, there is a lot of variation in regards to its physical features, significance, abilities, those kinds of things. So this is serious black. Yeah. <laughs> it, that took you like nothing. I like I gave you the barest amount of information <laughs> and you were like that. And I was, I had a section on it later and I was uh, like. Well, you can still say this section. You can <laughs> still say this section. <laughs> The look she gave me, the, I might make you cut this out. How dare you guess it right away? <laughs> but dog-like beast, that's all it took for you to be like, serious Black. I'm like, okay. Well, you said it, 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 it's called the Black Shuck. So serious Black, <laughs> dog-like beast, and, you know. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, so as with uh, all the situations like these that we've covered, I'm going to steer towards some of the most common themes and offer variations like where I can. But for sources-wise, I'm going with, just keep in mind, if you know about it, and you're like, no, it's not that, it's this, it's because there's so many different versions. different versions. So when we say Black Shuck, what are we thinking about? Well, the easiest way to describe it, and to give you the best mental visualization, the Black Shuck is an apparition of a black dog that is often viewed as a death omen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. One description of the Black Shuck published in Highways and Byways in East Anglia by William Alfred Dutt in 1901 says, He takes the form of a huge black dog and prowls along dark lanes and loathsome field footpaths, where, although his howling makes the hearer's blood run cold, his footfalls make no sound. Oh, spooky. But such an encounter might bring you the worst of luck. It is even said that to meet him is to be warned of your death that will occur before the end of the year. So you will do well to shut your eyes if you hear him howling. Shut them even if you are uncertain whether the dog is a friend or the voice of the wind you hear. You may perhaps doubt his existence and, like other learned folks, tell us that this story is nothing but old Scandinavian myth of the Black Hound of Odin brought to us by the Viking. Dot, dot, dot. So basically it's saying, you know, it's an omen of death. Shut your eyes. Even if you think it's something okay, 
and then you're and then he, he goes on to be like, you're just going to tell us that we're wrong, but we're not wrong. OK, so does shutting your eyes actually work? Like, say this this black dog is in front of you and he's like jumping up and down and he's like, woof, woof, woof. You if you just close your eyes, do you think that 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 counts? Like if you're like, no, I don't look at you. I'm not looking. I'm not looking. I'm not looking. Do you think I, that that counts? I like that your idea of a death helmet is like a, a, a playful puppy. Roof, 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 roof. Oh, Pomeranian. Well, I, like. Sorry. <laughs> your dog impressions are great. It's uh, you just know, amazing. I'm really a cat person. So. <laughs> no, so I think there are people that really think that in order for a like omen to count, you have to you have to see it. physically see it. Okay. It's like the idea of like, you know, don't look like don't bring your head up from under the covers because if you can't see it, even if you can hear it, if you can't see it, it's not real. It's very Medusa. Yes. 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 Theo Brown, who has written a few articles on the creature, states that there are primarily three separate types of black dog. Though she does note that obviously these three divisions exist for our convenience merely, as there are many overlaps. The first variation is, quote, that which is generally known locally as the Barguest, Shuck, Black Shag, Trash, Scriker, Padfoot, Hooter, and other names. Padfoot. These Hooter. are. What? I'll get to it. Okay, okay, okay I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> These are not the names of individuals, but of an impersonal creature which is distributed over certain areas. This type, which we may call the Burgess type, changes its shape, a thing that no true black dog ever does. The second variation is that which is nearly always known as the black dog. It is always black, it is always a dog, and nothing else. It is associated with a definite place or beat on a road, and it is always an individual. Sometimes it's associated with a person or a family. Another personal association is that with witches. Oh. And the third variety of black dog, which Brown says is rare, is that which appears in a certain locality in conjunction with a calendar cycle. It's okay. like almost werewolfy, but like... A dog that will appear in a specific area at a specific time of year. Okay. Okay. Like like the spring in Kent. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So what most people seem to agree on is that it ranges from the size of a large dog to as big as a calf or a horse. No, yeah, as a big dog. <laughs> it is covered in black shaggy fur and can br- produce a terrifying blood-curdling howl. So we're not talking about no black labs here. No. Like big wolfy, wolfy. Shaggy dog. Irish wolfhound. Okay, okay. It also likes to prowl areas that are associated with death, morbidity, darkness, or the spirit world. So often stories will like associated with it will be like in fens, uh, marshes slash bogs, deep dark forests, empty fields, gallows, cemeteries, and unmarked graves. So things that are already spooky made yep. spookier. And then... Then there's the, like, kind of, it's not so much spooky, but it can be creepy of, like, side roads, secluded footpaths, or crossroads. All of those are spooky. But they're not naturally, like, associated with death, but they can be spooky. Right. At least if you're a woman traveling alone. Exactly. In the folklore of many European countries, crossroads and roads, to a lesser extent, were considered to be locations between the worlds Mm -hmm. where spirits could manifest or be summoned. 
It is heavily implied that, despite its appearance, the black shuck is more para than normal as a creature. I yeah, if it because like if it prophesizes your death, I'm gonna go ahead. And but say they're it's saying para. like if you see it out and about and you're not buying it, like if you don't know about the black shuck, whatever, you're gonna know that it's creepy and that it something's wrong. Even if it just looks like a big dog, if it's one of the normal dog-shaped ones, you're not going to be like, oh, hey, puppy. You're going to be like, something's wrong. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, but that's about all that people do agree on. Exactly what it wants, what it can do, and the rest of its appearance is up for some debate. The number and appearance of its eyes is a matter of debate. Ew. Okay. It can have two eyes or a single one in the middle of its forehead. Oh, uh, Okay. Okay, I've seen illustrations of that. Uh, they can glow with otherworldly light or burn like flames. <gasps> um, red or green are two of the most common, like, burning eye kind of look for it. That, m- Sorry, I was just going to say that must be really inconvenient because uh, red and green color blindness is the most common <laughs> version of color blindness. And it usually affects men. <laughs> Hashtag fun fact. <laughs> That's what you're going to be focused on. I couldn't tell what color the eyes were. Yeah, they seemed kind of gray to me, really. (laughs) It is generally agreed that the black shuck can appear and dissipate at will, with some people holding that it can form and, like, disappear into a mist. Ooh. The black shuck is known by different names all across the UK. For example, people in Norfolk will say shuck, black shuck, or old shuck. Uh, People in East Anglia will say old shock, shucky dog. Black Shuck or the Shug Monster. <laughs> that one's cute. Uh, people in Suffolk might say Scarf or Galley Trot. Okay. In Lancashire, they refer to the creature as Trash, Guy Trash, or Scriker. That is so rude. Trash. Just, I mean, we, we, we call men trash all the time. Yeah, but this is a dog. <laughs> uh, in Staffordshire, it might be called Padfoot. I know that one. Which would explain where the name from the Harry Potter books come from. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And my personal favorite, in the Midlands or Warwickshire, they might call it a hooter. Yeah, a hooter? (laughs) A hooter. Okay. Why? Why do they call it a hooter? I don't know. There's just like, there's even more past this list. That was Uh just my favorite one because it said a hooter. Because like, (laughs) like, like, like hooter and the blowfish. Let her cry. Let her tears fall down. That's Hootie and the Blowfish. Let her stay. Hootie, not Hooter. Hooter and the Blowfish. (laughs) If it eases all her pain. I I really like Hootie and the Blowfish. I also do. (laughs) I can't believe you would call them Hooter and the Blowfish. It's funny to me, though. (laughs) The black dog has become an important visual motif for the area, especially in the town of Bungie, where it can be seen on their coat of arms, adorning weather vanes, and the name of the local football team, the Black Dogs. The first known written text describing a black shuck, uh, which shuck is actually derived from Old English of skuka, which means devil. Oh, so it's the... That's where the shuck part comes from. That was the only one that I could find a very definite, like, reason for the name behind it. Right, right. Um, So, yeah, first known written text was in England in 1,127. So, 1127 in the town of Petersboro. Let no one be surprised at the truth of what we are about to relate. 
for it was common knowledge throughout the whole country that immediately after his arrival, they're talking about Abbot Henry in the Abbey of Peterborough. Okay. It was the Sunday when they sing Excurge Choir. Many men saw and heard a great number of huntsmen hunting. The huntsmen were black and huge and hideous and rode on black horses and on black he-goats, and their hounds were jet black with eyes like saucers and horrible. This was seen in the very deer park of the town in Petersboro and all the woods that stretch from that same town to Stamford. And in the night, the monks heard them sounding and winding their horns. Reliable witnesses who kept watch that night declared that there might as well have been many as twenty or thirty of them winding their horns as near as they could tell. This was seen and heard from the time of his arrival through Lent right up to Easter. Unquote. Okay. So the events of 1127 were known as a wild hunt. Okay. And this wasn't just an English phenomena. Stories from across Central, Western, and Northern Europe recount loud, spectral, wild hunts throughout untamed lands. And they help explain the mythological, like, underpinnings of the Black Shuck. Basically saying that there were these, you know, the best thing I could think of would be compare them to, like, like Nazgul's and wraiths, like ring wraiths. Okay. Like, there were these creatures that rode it on, like, big black horses, and they had these, like, hellhounds or, like, demon dogs. Yeah. Basically following them around. So that's where they're saying the Shuck comes from. Oh, so... Are they saying that the shuck just kind of like was part of this big pack of Ex- wild dogs and then it just kind of like strayed away from his friends? From what I can tell, yeah. Okay. That's what they're implying. Um, Northern cultures associate wild hunts with the change of the seasons from fall into winter, probably because with that appearance, strong cold winds come in, blowing over the landscape and forcing people indoors. Anyone who didn't make it inside during winter could freeze to death. So they're saying like it's a death omen, cold wind, winter's, Get your ass inside or you'll die. Um, Yeah. Yeah. One of the most notable reports on this unnatural black dog came a few hundred years later in the 1500s. It was written down by Abraham Fleming in the reports of strange and wonderful spectacles. So this is the one that every source quoted. Okay. I'm like, I'm not even every source quoted this. Um, The story hails from the then villages of Bungay and Bythborough. In Suffolk, in August of 1577, during a violent storm, the parishioners in the Bungie gathered at the church for service and common prayer according to order. The rareness and suddenness of the storm, consisting of rain violently falling, fearful flashes of lightning and terrible cracks of thunder, which came with such force and power to the perceiving of the people, at the time and in the place assembled in the church— as it were, to quake and stagger, which struck to the hearts of those that were present such a sore and sudden fear that they were in a manner robbed right of their wits. So with this big, creepy, scary, like, church scene in mind where there's a huge, massive thunderstorm, everybody's frightened, it's shaking the walls of the church, it's putting everybody just, you know. So, with that in mind, Fleming said that the black shuck broke through the doors of the church with a clap of thunder. It then ran along the awestruck congregation with great swiftness. Swiftness? (laughs) With great swiftness and incredible haste. It broke the neck of two of the faithful in one instance, killing them where they kneeled praying. But they weren't looking. They were like, I can't see you. I can't see you. My head is bowed. 
Oh no, you could kneel in church and still be looking all around. I did it all the time. I was not. I was not like. No, I was looking around because it was boring. After this, the shuck bit another man whose skin drew together and shrunk up as if it were a piece of leather scorched in a hot fire. What? Or as the mouth of a purse or bag drawn together with a string. What? This man, according to Fleming, did not die but suffered this grievous injury. While all of this chaos was occurring, Fleming said the church was so darkened with such palpable darkness that one person could not perceive another. Neither yet might discern any light at all, though it was lesser to the least, but only when the greatest flash of lightning appeared. So, I wouldn't want to go to that yeah, church. Yeah, no, it sounds terrible. So, the clerk of the church, um, I couldn't tell if the clerk means like one of the priests or a caretaker. Okay. But the clerk of the church who was busy cleaning the gutter of the building during the storm. That seems... Wait, this was before we figured out about electricity, so I guess I, I guess I can give him a little bit of leeway. He doesn't understand about lightning. So he was cleaning the gutter, and he fell from the roof on account of this violent weather. The shuck came upon him, and Fleming writes that he escaped unharmed either by the fall or the beast. This may sound against the truth and to be a thing incredible, but let us leave thus or thus to judge, he concludes. So that's where I, and I had noted here, pause quick. Who in the hell cleans the gutters during a massive thunderstorm? Right. I mean, it's windy. Like, even if they didn't know about the, like, lightning aspect, like, you're still, it's, like, the wind, and then it's just, who wants to just be out cleaning in that amount of rain? Right. Even if stuff was, is just going to fly into the gutters. Exactly. Also, they had gutters on the church. When was this? Uh, 1500s. 1577. Huh. They probably did, but it's still just, like, I don't know, it just seemed like. It's dumb. You could have waited till after the storm, bro. Right, right. One part of Fleming's account takes a surprising turn. He calls the shuck's visit an example of God's wrath, no doubt to terrify us that we might fear him for his justice or pulling back our footsteps from the paths of sin so to love him for his mercy. So basically Fleming took it what everybody else turns into like a Satan or demon thing, and he's like, this is an example of God, yo. I do not think that I could roll my eyes aggressively enough at that. I am you can't you can't say that he brought down this violent wrath and then be like it's just so you can you can experience his mercy. People like, do that all the, the time. Fuck? That's so backwards. People do that you all can't the time. Be both merciful and wrathful. But honestly, it is a little surprising like I see what you're saying, but people do that but it's still surprising cuz at that period People would often not take that, like, that stance of this is a showing of mercy. They usually went for the devil, not the divine. Right. So that was, I mean, that was a an odd take on that. Yeah. And especially since that story has nothing, like, there's no background information about the people in the church who were killed. Yeah. Like, about them being particularly sinful. Yeah. So it's like these people are in church, which is what you're supposed to do. But sometimes if you're in church, you might get eaten by a dog but you should definitely still go to church because that's what God wanted. <laughs> As for proof of this event, which some will seem absurd, although the sensibleness of the thing confirms it to be the very truth, okay. according to Fleming. Okay. He cites the marks the shuck left in the stones of the church floor and on its door, which he described as marvelously rotten and torn. The marks were as if of his claws and talons. So... Apart from this, 
the uh, internal mechanisms of the church clocks with all the wires, the wheels, everything, mm-hmm. were torn asunder and broke to pieces. So basically he's saying that even if you don't believe his account of it or the account of the people that were there, there are marks and damage to the church that shows otherwise. Okay. I don't like this guy. Another more recent story, recent-ish, few hundred years later, uh, was told in the Rocklands, a civil parish in the English country of Norfolk. It's a pretty good example of how this image of the black shuck continues to remain hundreds of years alive and well for centuries, mm-hmm. straight up until the present. Uh, writing for the Lowstoft-based Borderland Science Investigation Group in their journal Lantern in 1977, UK historian and author Ivan Bunn recounts how in 1893, a sighting of the hound ended in the death of the ones who saw it. The story is told how at Rockland, Norfolk, one night, a man and his companion were driving along a lane, when suddenly, right in their path, stood a huge, uncanny dog. The driver pushed on in spite of its companion's warning, and the cart touched the thing, and the air was alive with flames, and a hideous, sulfurous stench loaded the atmosphere. Within a short time, the overbold driver died, and the shuck has not been seen since in these parts. That's what the text reads. Interesting. One of the legendary aspects of the shuck's character is his apparent ability as the foretelling of death. The impression generally given by legends is that everyone who encounters him will meet some misfortune, usually death, within a short time, or else somebody close to them will. Although some versions of the same legend do insert that it could be termed as an escape clause, where the misfortune only befalls them if they mention their encounter within 12 months. So you'll die by the end of the year, unless you just see it and don't talk about it at all. Now, once the end of the year, the 12 months is over, then can you talk about it? That's what it says here. Like, oh. it's that's the escape clause. You got to keep your mouth shut for a year. Okay. You got to wait until the non-disclosure agreement is up. Okay. Yeah, you got to wait for that NDA. Yep. No longer be active. As with other aspects of the Shuck Legends, for out of a total of 74 stories so far collected, only 17 instances of death followed when the witness actually attributed the death to the encounter with the appearance of the shuck. So this, like, uh, article is basically saying that 74 people said they encountered it, only 17 died. Within the allotted Within the time. allotted time, yep. Okay. One of the most recent stories I found related to the black shuck was from a Daily Mail article back in 2014 mm. titled... Is this the skeleton of a legendary devil dog, Black Shuck, who terrorized 16th century East Anglia? Oh, maybe that's why it doesn't exist anymore is because it died. Is that my stomach or yours? That's yours. Oh, wow. (laughs) So, Daily Mail, take that for what it is. Um, According to the article, 500 years after the Black Shuck first went on the prowl, archaeologists were examining the skeleton of a seven-foot-long dog unearthed in the remains of the ancient abbey. So they're saying that this is after the one Fleming was talking about. That's the abbey they're talking about. Oh, okay. So they found this on that property. It was discovered a few miles from the churches where the black shuck was said to have killed worshippers during that Fleming fateful night. Mm -hmm. What's more, it appears to have been buried in a shallow grave at precisely the same time as the shuck is said to have been on the loose, primarily around the Suffolk and East Anglia region. 
The bones uncovered in the ruins of Leiston Abbey were first found by archaeologist group Dig Adventures. Painstaking work revealed the skeleton of an extremely large dog. Estimates suggest it would have weighed more than 14 stone and stood 7 feet tall on its hind legs. I had to look up what 14 stone is. Apparently that's about 196 pounds or 88.9 kilograms. The grave was less than 20 inches deep and unmarked. Pottery fragments found at the same level date from the height of the shuck's alleged reign. Uh, the article concludes with radiocarbon tating tests will now give an exact age for the bones, results that will serve either to enhance the shaggy dog stories or perhaps support the far less entertaining theory that here lies a you know 16th century beloved hunting dog from the Abbott. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In an attempt to find the results of that carbon dating nine years later, I found a 2016 article by Mark Norman from Folklore Thursday uh, where he basically blasts the Daily Mail for saying they had proof before they actually ever got any proof. Ah, mm-hmm. But he did go a bit more into the history and people's experiences with the Black Shuck in that same article. Norman says, The Black Shuck discovery continues to draw on a motif which has been with us for a long time and which still affects a number of people in the 20th and 21st centuries, even if they are unaware of the legends. Sometimes they can be completely unaware that because of their age. For example, Nikki Hatch sent me this story from her childhood. I grew up in Liphook, just under the Iron Bridge, and turned left. Wheatchiff Enclosure. The road leading to the golf course and further on to the coach head. My mother was in the habit of walking the dogs in the early evening around dusk. It was one such evening, and I was in a pushchair, so I guess I would have been around two or three years old, which would make it around 1965 or 66. The poodles apparently stopped at the crossroads where the main road intercepts with the coach road, staring towards the right, and then they turned and growled. I remember seeing a large black dog. Its mouth was very red. Its coat was rough and coarse, and it stood looking down at me. I apparently said to my mother, Mommy, I don't like that black dog. But she could see nothing. Uh. I remember it felt threatening, although my recollection, it did nothing. Okay. My mother tells me that she saw a black dog herself only a short distance along the same path. It was standing on the path looking towards her. She bent to pick up the poodles and it was gone, although she couldn't see where it would have gone and jumped without her noticing. So Nikki says that it was many years before she realized that the black dog sightings were so common. At the, you know, toddler age, she estimates that there was obviously no way she could have known about or consciously drawn upon any folk motif surrounding the black dog. Right. So what did she see? Was it a real dog? And if so, why did her mother not see it as well? And too many years have passed for us to ever know for certain, obviously. But that's kind of one of those plays on the idea that people are like, oh, well, you're creating a story because you know about it. Right. Well, what toddler, what parents are going to tell their toddler about a creepy black dog? I mean, the Germans would. Have you ever heard of German folklore? It's scary. (laughs) But this this, this this isn't in Germany. (laughs) And it's also in the 60s. Like, that's like old school folklore. No, it's in the 80s, right? No, this happened in the 60s. Oh, I thought thought she said 1986. No, the story was published in later on, but this, she said, was when she was younger, so it would have been around 65 or 66. Oh, wow. I just immediately associated it with myself and my age. (laughs) (laughs) So there are, like, kind of spawning off of this in my Googling, 
There are whole websites devoted to black dog sightings. Uh, one is called Shuckland, which is an encyclopedia that catalogs sightings by location of the black dog in Europe. Oh, my gosh. Did you just have the best time on that website? Oh, yeah. Some were really small. Some were more lengthy. But basically any, it's some that are stories that were sent to the person who runs the website. Mm. And there are some that this person found by, like, going around and, like, reading books. And then basically anything he could find on it or they could find on it. Yeah. he They just, like, plopped into the website. Okay. There were two reports in the Heatherset location. One said... Somewhere around 1990, a Heatherset man was cycling northwards at about 5.30 a.m. towards the place of his employment, the former Brooks of Norwich meat processing plant at Beckleith. He said that he was on Henstead Road, but from his description, it must have been further along Little Melton Road. As he got round a sharp left-hand bend, he saw a huge rough-coated dog keeping pace with him on his right-hand side. Although he couldn't see its head, he thought it looked like a wolfhound or deerhound, but he felt no fear, although it made no noise as it padded along. Just over 100 meters further along the road, he took a sharp right-hand turn on the bend, and the dog was lost in the darkness. Two cars had passed him on the stretch of road during the encounter. Both drivers were fellow employees at Brooks, and when he asked them, neither had seen the dog. He was sure that the animal hadn't left the road, as there was wire fencing behind the hedges, and the sheep in the fields beyond would have been spooked by the dog if he had got through. So he's just riding his bike along, 5 o'clock in the morning, it's dark. And then this big dog is, like, running alongside him, but he wasn't afraid. But it made no noise. And it made no noise. Yep. A second report was also in 1990, and this encounter took place at the Heatherset Memorial playing field, probably... Like, right around that time, they didn't have an exact date. Mm -hmm. Late one night, a man had walked along Cannes Lane into Ketz Close, where he took a footpath leading into and across the playing field. Whilst heading southwest towards another entrance in the recreation road, he realized that a large, dark shape in front of him was a huge, rough-coated dog. The dog stayed just ahead of him, speeding up and slowing down as he did. After about 130 meters of walking, the path took him behind a pavilion, and the dog was still there when he emerged. However, when he came up from behind the toilet block, it had vanished. And although the night was clear and visibly good, there was no sign of it anywhere running away from him across the field. And he also felt no, no badness? Not that there was a report in. Huh. This incident was told to the man in the first story without any knowledge of, like, this other occurrence. Both men were strangers. They have had no interaction and said that they both, like, the stories sounded similar. It was just their locations that they were going. That's so interesting. That it's like a, like a rogue check. It's like a, like a happy one. Like a good <laughs> one. I'm trying to think of a, I know that there's a movie or a cartoon where every, you, oh, Casper. Oh, my God. Back to Casper. All these other shucks are super scary and like ghosts like his uncle. And then there's Casper and he's like, I just want to be friends with humans. And that's what this shuck reminds me of. I don't get that feeling. I think it's just an omen. But they didn't die. Nothing no, happened. But it just feels like like it doesn't. An omen doesn't have to immediately mean death. You could have just that's indicated true. something else. You You're know? almost to work. <laughs> uh, Shucklin lists a report from Windfarthing in Norfolk. Reported in Phantoms of the Night in uh, Norwich Mercury, which was published in 1944. 
A Windfarthing woman once assured me that she had seen the apparition of this type of phantom dog. She said she was looking out of her bedroom window at about 9 o'clock one summer evening when she saw a huge black dog approaching her cottage. It padded up to the gate and vanished. Her grandfather died shortly afterwards, and my informant was firmly convinced that the dog had come to herald his death. And a person from Shuckland tells of a letter they received in September of 1983 and said, Old Hux is the name of a ghost dog. It uses the old disused rail track along Overstrand proceeding into Comer Beach. That rail line is done away with now, but it was said that something happened to the Hux master, probably tragic. I don't actually know, and the dog frequents this stretch looking for his master. This is also the area of Poppyland and the Great Forest Park caravan site. Huck's red eyes show up at dusk as one hears baying and puffing, and it is said to be unlucky to meet, which is more the latter part of the year, and old Huck's roams around there and back on the old rail track. So this old, like, shuck is said to be just wandering around looking for its owner. That's so sad. So there are dozens upon dozens of these stories reported on the Shuckland page. And it's not, despite its appearance, a super out-of-date website. Like, it looks like one of those old ones that, like, somebody just Early pasted 90s, it together with, like, yeah. basic HTML knowledge. Yeah. But at the top of the page, they list when they, like, when the most recent stories were added. Yeah. And there were, like, two added in 2022. Oh. One added in 20, one added in 19. And They're just not very good website designers and the last article on the website was august of 2022 that is not long ago at all also i apologize to anyone who might hear my stomach (laughs) rumbling it's making a lot of noise right here if you hear some sort of like sounds like whales in the background that's not whales (laughs) that's my stomach although all black dogs are seen as malevolent actors or associated with a devil or demonic like, and when they say black dogs, they mean capital B, capital D, like all ghostly apparitions of black dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not talking about your, like, if you have a black puppy, we're not saying your dog is evil. Yeah. We're not talking about labs here. It is the only the black shuck of northern England that is considered to be actively, directly harmful to people. Very few examples, such as the black dogs in the Somerset areas, are considered to be benign or even malevolent beings acting as guardians of important places or safeguarding travelers. So there are some versions of black dogs that are good, I guess. That kind of goes with what you were talking about, like feeling like they're the happy options. Caspers. The Caspers. For example, Augustus Hare, in his book In My Solitary Life, recounts a common tale he heard about a man called Johnny Greenwood of Swancliffe. Johnny had to ride through the wood in darkness for a mile to get to where he was going. At the entrance of the wood, he was joined by a black dog. It patterned beside him until he emerged from the trees where it would disappear as quickly as it had arrived. On his return journey through the wood, the dog joined him again in the dark woodland path and disappeared mysteriously when he emerged. Apparently, some years later, two prisoners condemned to death confessed that they had decided to rob and murder Johnny that night in the wood, but the presence of the large black dog had stopped them. Oh, that's a good story, I Kayla. thought I specifically, you were talking about the Casper, and I was like, no, we're getting there. We're, we're getting, getting there. there. We're getting there. So 
you know, mythology has tons of examples of dogs associated with the idea of death. That's a pretty common thing. Mm-hmm. Like Cerberus. Yes. Um, but it's possible that this association was cemented onto the scavenging behaviors of wild dogs. Like, black. they're basically saying that we have all this mythology. Whether or not it's true, there is probably, like, a true basis for it. So basically, in early, early life, people would see these packs of wild dogs scrounging and scavenging, like, you know, deer-like carcasses or something like that. And then that's how they got associated with death. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. So, in Europe, animals similar to the black dog appear in stories from France, Belgium, and Italy, while German and Czech folklore holds that the devil can sometimes appear in the shape of a black dog. It just really reminds me of hellhounds. Like, all of these stories are just yeah. hellhounds. But this is what, and then this was the thing that I found interesting is that they have all this mythology. They have, like, you know, all these countries have things that are associated with dogs. But this, like, East England area is the one that is very specifically, like, no, this is a black dog, old shuck, like, the list of names. Right. They're all centered around the same idea. Whereas when you get more varied out, it's mostly just dog hellhound like that kind of thing yeah so it's very interesting that it has this centralized yeah only in this one specific area in the world does this black dog do this one very specific exactly uh extra little fun fact to end with for those who may want to look into this further if you google the black shuck you're going to encounter a lot of uh game rant and other such articles because you're gonna be trying to find out how to encounter the black shuck on your own they're not talking about how you personally can encounter the black shuck on your own. They're trying to talk to you about how to do it in the game Assassin's Creed Valhalla. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so it was a lot of sorting out the Assassin's Creed articles between the like actual historical articles. <laughs> that is interesting because didn't you say that Odin had a black dog associated with him? Yes. So... The shuck is the name of the English version, so it's interesting that they use the word shuck in something related to Valhalla, which is more of Odin's territory. Yeah, but that, like, the Valhalla, that, that's a lot of that kind of mythology kind of mixed in that game. Okay. The Assassin's Creed people try to be really realistic with whatever zone they're, like, like timeline that they're, oh, like, rolling I've never into. i it. Um, I don't. Because I get motion sick. Oh. <laughs> but Sean plays it a lot. And I remember there was one where they were in like ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. And they actually had a whole section where you weren't playing the game. It was like a museum. And then they would like, when you go into certain parts of the like city that you're in. Yeah. They would talk, like you could click on it and you could read articles about. <gasps> you like, could learn? You could learn. I it's love very games cool. like that. They're like very heavily researched. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't know if the other games do it. I just know that one did. Okay. Um, so, on a skeptic scale of para to normal, para being five, normal being one, mm-hmm. what are you going to give the black shuck? Um, I'm going to give it a 3.5. Good. Good. Yes. Yeah. Good. yeah. I was going to go three. Yeah. I, I was about to go three, and then I wanted to give you a little extra. Thanks. Oh, I, pre- I appreciate know. that. Yeah, I'm going to go three just because 
It's another middle of the road story. I do think that there are omens. I don't know that this specifically is a, but I believe in the idea of regular omens throughout the years. And the fact that right. the legend has continued for centuries is a good indicator right. for me. But also, because it was like, what, 69 people saw it and only 19 people died. Yeah, I don't know that it's an omen. It could just be like like a death omen. It could just be like a creepy thing. Well, I meant maybe some of those people just saw like a regular dog. Well, and also like relating to that, uh, the like skeleton they found. Yeah, but didn't didn't they say that they didn't know if that was real? Because the Daily well, Daily Mail just decided to well, the Daily Mail jump on it. The Daily Mail jumped on it, but they never like actually. I could not find any results of the carbon dating. Okay, but it's and a the big ass dog. But the fact is that that's not actually okay. Uh, are you friends with Dan Kraus? No, he's a local musician. He has an Irish wolfhound. It's as big as a horse. He brought it to Pride last year. Like when I stand. Yeah. And the dog is on hind, like, or on its all fours. Yeah. His head comes up to my boobs. And it, like, and naturally when a dog is that big, also it's going to weigh more because. and it's big. Yeah, yeah. And those are hunting dogs that will exhibit, like, like that kind of behavior. Yeah. So it could have just been, like, a wolfhound. Right. So it could have just been, like, oh, we love this dog. We are going to bear this dog in the garden. But we're not going to dig very deep because we're lazy. So, you know, there's that too. Maybe they're elderly. You don't have to go straight to lazy, Kayla. <laughs> Maybe they physically don't have the capabilities to dig that deep. They could have hired somebody, a young lad out in the village. They have no money. They're poor and elderly. <laughs> All right, we're creating this whole narrative for these people from the 1500s that we don't know. You're defensive. You don't I'm know them. You don't know them, <laughs> Kayla. I'm just saying. <laughs> All right. What do you got for me this week? Ha. Well, today's story was inspired by real life ghost stories. The podcast. Nice. Uh, Emma had a listener story about this location. And before she beat me to it, because she said she should do a story on it for a main episode. I'm like, no, I'm going to do it first, Emma. <laughs> Because we probably have some listeners that like. Because you're competitive. Well, no, I was I was thinking that like we have some listeners that probably listen to that podcast, but I feel like a lot of that podcast listeners don't listen to us. So it's you know you're competitive. Yes, I am. <laughs> I am indeed. All right. So tonight I'm or today is this the earliest we've ever recorded? Yes. It's noon on a Sunday. It's, or it was well, noon. When if we it's started. not the earliest we've ever recorded, it is the earliest we've recorded in a at least a year. Yeah, 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 yeah. Usually we do nighttime, so I really just want to say so tonight. <laughs> so this afternoon, I am going to tell you about the Sydney Quarantine Station, aka the North Head Quarantine Station, aka the Q Station in Australia. Alrighty. The Sydney Quarantine Station is located at the very edge of the Sydney Harbor, uh, more specifically on the north head of the harbor. The This is where I tell you a little bit more about that because I was very confused by what any of that meant. So the Sydney Heads are a series of headlands that form the wide entrance to the Sydney Harbor. And a head is a coastal landform a point of land that is usually very high and often has a sheer drop that extends into a body of water. So in the U.S., these are a lot of our capes, Cape May, 
Yep. Cape Cod. Yeah. Cape Ann. Also, the lovely North Shore in Minnesota, <laughs> which is just a few miles north of where we are now. Now, before I go into the history of the quarantine station, I do just want to acknowledge the indigenous people that originally used this land. They briefly mentioned it on the Q Station website, quote, North Head is part of the richer history of Aboriginal occupation of Sydney Harbor. Whilst there is little detail in recorded knowledge of the Aboriginal presence on the Manly Peninsula, Peninsula, uh, one of the local clans associated with North Head, a tidal island called Karangel, were the Gayami. Karangel was an important ceremonial site used by the Koridi, uh, otherwise known as the wise ones of the associated clans of the northern beaches. It was the place of significant teaching and ceremonial practices, unquote. Uh, they go on to say that some of the first interactions between the Aboriginal clans of Australia and the British colonialists uh, occurred at this site in January of 1788, which actually is not that long ago. No, it's really not. Um, Especially when you consider once we started getting into like European history and that kind of stuff. Right. How far back it goes. Far you back just it goes. talked about what, 100? 1127. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do think it's worth noting that even if your source, because you said they briefly mentioned it. Yes. Even if your source had tried to find out more, if I remember correctly from like a college article I wrote, most Aboriginal like practices like are in, in Australia and New Zealand are closed practices. So, like, if you're not part of them, you would not really be invited to learn anything about them. Um, this is less about them not specifically mentioning what the practices were. Mm -hmm. um, more that they barely touched on the fact that these Aboriginal clans okay. were very, had a very long history here. Had they, a long history and then were taken over. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Though they also left out all of the conflict and death that happened to the indigenous people when the British colonists decided that they were just yeah. going to stay there. As well as all the death that occurred due to the European diseases that they brought with them. Because why would they talk about that? Because that's not just an American thing, folks. That happened everywhere the British decided to do this shit. Yes, it did. That's why a lot of people weren't sad with the passing of the Queen. Anyway. Uh, I'm not actually going to go into that any further, but I did think it was important just to mention that this land that I'm going to tell this whole story on was already occupied by indigenous people yep. in Australia. Yep. And then we took it over. And by we, I mean white people. But the indigenous people of Australia weren't the only ones affected by disease brought into the country by boat. Though, again, they would have been just fine if we had left them alone. Ships traveling between continents were often known to carry devastating diseases. So as Kayla talked about way back in episode 26 about Pavilion Island. Forever off, ago. Forever ago. Off the coast of Venice, Italy. Uh, the practice of quarantining became popular during the 14th century in an effort to protect these coastal cities from plague epidemics. Specifically, ships arriving in Venice from infected ports were required to sit at anchor for 40 days before coming ashore. This practice, called quarantine, was derived from the Italian words. Do you remember? No. Uh, I'm probably going to butcher them. So it's a quarantata. No, it's a quaranta. 
Skiarni. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I have no recollection of those words. <laughs> That's probably because those aren't the words. <laughs> Very last line. Coranta giorni. Coranta giorni. That's basically what I said. <laughs> the same, same words. Same, same thing. Same, same words. Thing. You just had a better accent while saying it. Okay. Uh, anyway, so that. Quarantagioni? Sure. Uh, it means 40 days. Okay. So quarantine means basically 40 days set aside, couldn't hang out with any of the other people. Man, quarantine. Don't miss that. <laughs> I kind of do. Fuck off. <laughs> I'm an introvert, okay? I thrived <laughs> during quarantine. Anyway, so Sydney, another coastal location. Uh, implemented its own quarantine. So from 1832 to 1984, when migrant ships, both containing free as well as convicted Europeans, arrived in Sydney and they were suspected to have contagious diseases, they stopped inside North Head, which was considered an ideal site for a quarantine facility due to its isolations, deep anger options, freshwater spring, and proximity to the entrance of Sydney Harbor, and they would offload passengers and crew to quarantine to protect the local residents. Okay. And actually, prior to 1832, the only ships that really required quarantine were those containing convicts, because as many of us know, starting in the late 1700s, the British used the newly charted Sydney Territory as a penal colony called New South Wales. And they were kept on their ship until it was deemed safe for them to come to land. But as more and more, quote unquote, free folks started immigrating to Sydney, it became clear that some of these folks still needed to be quarantined for the safety of everyone. Mm -hmm. But ship captains were less cool uh, about being made to stay on ship during this process. They're like, "Uh, we're not convicts. We're just regular people. And we have to stay out here for 40 years. Days after traveling across the world? I'm just waiting for the part where they like took a lifeboat and ditched a boat full of prisoners and were like locked the cabin door and were like, don't go in here. You guys are fine. <laughs> I don't have a story like that. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's goodness. what I was that's like when you were like when you're like, and they were like, Why the fuck do we have to stay? Never mind, we're not gonna stay. Okay. That's not uh, the that's yeah, not, no, the that's thing. not okay. that's not where it went. But uh, that sounds like something that would have happened. And maybe it did. <laughs> just I don't know about it. So instead legislation was passed, the eighteen thirty two quarantine act, and it said that all ships entering port were required to be screened for disease and then quarantine if needed. Okay. Yeah. So take your COVID test before you go to events. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And if you if you have the COVID, you can't go. Yep. Basically is what is what's happening. This also helped this change in legislation, uh, for instances of commercial ships who really needed to just like get in, get out and be on their way. Because hashtag fun fact that I didn't know because I don't really deal with shipping or delivery. There is essentially a fine that can be implemented if these ships are delayed unnecessarily. Mm hmm. It's called demerge. Demerge? I don't know. I think it's called demerge, which is defined as a charge payable to the owner of a chartered ship in respect of failure to load or discharge the ship within an agreed time. Basically saying if you cause us problems and lost profits by fucking with our shipping, 
you're going to pay us. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So this new legislation lessened the amount of money that had to be paid for delaying commercial ships while also keeping the folks of Sydney safe for from uh, communicable diseases. And initially, it sounded like those who were sick were still required to stay on board the ship until it was deemed safe for them to, like, come out and hang out with all of us on land. But this practice changed after the sad story of the Lady McNaughton. The Lady McNaughton was an English ship that was founded in 1825, and their first journey from Dublin to Sydney in 1835 uh, had about 300 male convicts, was, was who the passengers were. And that went fine. Mm -hmm. But in 1837, when they were making the trip again, this time with families crossing from Cork to Sydney, about four months into the journey, folks were made aware that around 50 adults and children on board had died, most likely due to typhus. When they reached port, the unaffected were brought to shore, their clothing was burned, and they were basically quarantined on land in tents. But those who were sick were kept on the ship which caused a subsequent heavy demurrage claim for the delay. Mm -hmm. We said, no, your sick have to stay on the ship. And they're like, the fuck they do. We're on a time limit, yo. Chop, chop, we got a schedule. Exactly, exactly. So to avoid any more fines, essentially the sick were removed from the ship, which was then fumigated and scoured for return to the owner. And after this, they were like, you know. Scrub the poop deck. <laughs> exactly. Because typhus, feces, yeah. scrubbing. Can you imagine having typhus on a ship? Mm. Oh, my God. And they were, all of those cabins were so cramped and <gasps> just gross already. Oh, my God. I cannot even. I cannot even. Hence why they had to scrub the poop deck. Yeah. And after this, they were like, you know what? Let's just not deal with this keeping the sick on the ship nonsense. So between that and then with also additional screenings and better cabin and food conditions aboard these ships traveling from Europe to Sydney, not only did the general mortality rate decline, but there was also less need to have these massive quarantines. Yeah, that tracks. But then in 1853, this massive ship with over a thousand passengers came into port. And since the quarantine station could really only accommodate about 150 people, the folks were like, we need to expand. So while they found temporary placement for the folks on this ship, they did decide to add additional buildings to the site to accommodate more people in the future. And according to ehive.com, quote, by the 1800s, the site was expanded and internees organized into precincts, uh, which were used to segregate passengers according to class. Ugh. Yeah, so they can now accommodate significant, like hundreds of people, not just 150. Yeah. But what those folks got to experience once they were in quarantine varied Ugh. heavily based upon how fancy they were. Well, you know. Sometimes you're a fancy lad, sometimes you're not. But not everyone who found themselves at the quarantine station were folks who arrived via ship. During the epidemics of smallpox in 1880 and the bubonic plague in 1900, the quarantine station also housed infected Sydney ciders, some of whom were taken from their homes at a moment's notice. You know what's a fun word? Bubonic? Yes, bubonic. <laughs> I I'm knew it was. I've always thought bubonic <laughs> is a fun word. I mean, it wasn't that much fun to live in, I'm guessing, but, but it's just fun to say, to say. Bubonic. Yeah, so even folks who were already in Sydney 
established lives. If they got sick with a plague, sometimes they were, they were sent back to the quarantine station. Yep, yep. In 1909, the Commonwealth took over responsibility for the quarantine services. It was used as a refuge in World War One for soldiers returning from the battlefields of France with venereal diseases and tuberculosis. <laughs> yep. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, Enjoy your VD. Kind of a, a common issue, actually, for soldiers returning home from Europe. American soldiers as well. A lot of venereal diseases. <sighs> Thank you, France. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Suddenly, we lose all of our French listeners. <laughs> the, the whole point, oh, 0.01% of them. Yeah. Someone from France listened to us one time. <laughs> and they got, and then they're never going to listen again. They're never going to listen to again. Not after I just insulted them about venereal diseases. Then during the Spanish influenza pandemic of 18, nope, of 1918 through 1919, 1,200 people were brought to Sydney's quarantine station, which was without a doubt the busiest time in the station's history. So those are folks from Australia already. Yeah. Who caught the Spanish influenza. And it's reported that as many as 6,387 people died from the disease during this time, likely within the quarantine station. The Spanish flu is the one that's often compared to COVID, right? Yes. Okay. After the 1930s, modes of transportation across the world had started to change. And with the advances in medicine, there was significantly less need for the quarantine station. And the last ship to be quarantined was actually in 1973 called the Sakaki Maru. Sakaki Maru. Sakaki Maru. After which the site was used to accommodate Vietnamese orphans and a temporary home for women and children evacuated from Darwin after Cyclone Tracy. Because really, the only folks who needed to use the station for quarantining were those who arrived in Australia with inadequate vaccine certificates. So it's not even that they were, like, infected with anything. They just did not have good certificates to say that they had been vaccinated. So they're like, we're just going to put you in quarantine just in case. If you don't show up with your vaccine card, you go into quarantine. You're going to quarantine. The station eventually closed in 1984 and was handed over to the National Parks and Wildlife Services. It is currently leased to the Mowland Group and has been revamped into a 4.5-star Q-Station retreat, a hotel, event, and convention center. <laughs> Stay at our hotel and convention center where thousands have died. <laughs> Very fancy. <laughs> that's, that's the fanciest life. <laughs> Uh, but weddings, business conferences, and weekend getaways aren't the only thing that you can enjoy at the Q station. You can also enjoy bubonic plague. Yeah. Well, no, that doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. I mean, probably in some lab somewhere, but that's not what we're talking about. Among its many activities, including uh, uh, scuba diving, kayaking, wildlife and history tours, it's also unsurprising that, with such a tragic and death-filled past, it also offers ghost tours. Hell yeah! Considered one of the most haunted locations in Australia, it is no stranger to ghostly apparitions, such as the apparition of a man in a black cloak and wide-brimmed hat uh, sighted many times in the building known as the Gravedigger's Cottage. 
which really doesn't actually have anything to do with grave diggers. It was given that name because this uh, black cloak, black cloak, and wide brimmed hat. It was a grave digger's uniform. Yes. Um, and the fact that it's flanked on two sides by the quarantine station cemeteries, uh, the cottage was actually originally used by doctors. <laughs> you know, okay, this is not the use of the outfit of like the black cloak and the wide brimmed hat. And uh-huh. I think at some point during worst pandemic levels in the like 1800s, uh-huh. they used to wear the the uh, bird mask things. Yes, that had the, the plague masks. Yeah. Um, there is a TikToker that made one that he wore that hat and that cloak and then a and a plague mask and it just shows him digging in the ground. He goes, Hi, I'm Necromancer Bob and today we're gonna do another unboxing. <laughs> I've seen that. <laughs> it makes that's all I can think of when you're talking about that outfit now. It's like today we're doing an unboxing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that TikTok I sent you. Uh TikTok side note. Uh where to say that you got the morbs the morbs is a vic- come down with the morbs. It's a Victorian slang term to mean that you're like kind of depressed. Yeah, you have melancholy, so <laughs> you'd be like, "I just I got the morbs. Got the morbs today. Sorry. Yeah, I'm just feeling a little bit morby." <laughs> All right, sorry. Con- continue. Okay, so, so the so the uh, so the uh, the the cottage, the gravedigger's cottage. The gravedigger's cottage is actually where the doctors lived, but there is this man in a gravedigger's outfit that hangs out there. Okay. And through the use of a spirit box, paranormal investigators have concluded that this man in the black cloak is the apparition of a worker named Sam. And while they don't know 100% the matter of his death, what they have concluded from their conversations is that he had actually unalived himself there. Ooh. In addition to this becloaked specter, folks have also reported feeling the sensation of hands wrapping around their throats of being pushed down from the chest, and of being submerged underwater. Ooh, I would hate that. The feeling of being submerged underwater without actually being in any water. Because how do you get out? How do you get out? You can't. You can't. Um, According to timeout.com, mediums and paranormal investigators have come to the belief that a unknown woman was actually attacked and murdered in this cottage, and she was murdered via having been drowned in a bathtub. Oof. Folks claim to have seen her spirit, often described as weeping, sat crouching in that bathtub. I'm sorry, that something flew past the window, but I didn't see it in there. Oh, you saw it in the I reflection? I saw it in the I was reflection. Like, what are we looking at? And it freaked me out, but <laughs> I, I think it was tell. just a bird. I think I could, it was just a bird flying past your I window, but I saw You're it over just there. Like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> I don't normally get freaked out by stuff, but it just like, I think it's because we're recording so early. It caught me on guard. <laughs> It's usually just darkness outside I know. the window. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to be a distraction there. <laughs> One tour guide said of the cottage, quote, the energy is so strong. A lot of people on our tour will just walk in there and know immediately that something bad has happened there. I had one guy who walked into the bathroom, and before I said anything about it to him, he said, this place is pure evil. Mm. So many people have the same reaction, unquote. Folks who visit the cottage have been known to experience panic attacks and even loss of consciousness, as well as experiencing drawers, cupboards, and wardrobes open and close upon themselves. Sometimes, they've actually very specifically been known to, like, when these doors and, and drawers open, they, like, hit anyone who's near them in the process. 
but like it almost seems intentional is the implication. Like it's your passive aggressive roommate who waits till you're right by them and you're like in their space so they fling open drawers without asking you to politely move. Yeah, basically, basically that was very much the implication. Okay. Another place of strong paranormal activity is the shower block. Here, in addition to feeling just watched, a lot of people just feel really watched in this area, guests claim to see the figure of a tall man. He's been described as being about seven feet tall. Ooh. Yeah. And shadowy, ghostly, as well as that of a young girl. The girl, thought to be around six, has been heard complaining that she doesn't want to go under the acid shower. Oh. And according to one of my sources, back in the day, those who were sick had to take a shower of carbonic acid, not water, at the, in the shower block. And the acid kills fleas and ticks in, like, seconds. But then within, like, a day or so after that, uh, their skin would start to peel off. Just slough right off. Just... So I get it. The little girl doesn't want to do that. I get it. That's gross. <laughs> I like the continued sound. It was just <laughs> over and over. Uh, one woman on a tour claimed that when she was at the end of the shower, she felt as if someone touched her. She turned around expecting to see her friend, but no one was near her. And another guest said that she suddenly felt like she was in a scolding hot shower, though once she left the area, she felt just fine. You hang out there. I love my showers scalding hot. She said she felt like she was, like, burning. Oh, maybe not that hot. Yeah. Okay. One guy told the Daily Mail, quote, I've never been able to walk all the way down the shower blocks. Something always stops me halfway, and I have to turn around. When I first started working there, I thought it was just me, but I guess a lot of people have said the same thing, unquote. In the hospital section of the quarantine station, There appears to be two nurses who continue to work to look after patients long since gone. Cute. They care. These women were thought to be Nurse Elizabeth McGregor and Nurse Annie Egan, both of whom lost their lives to Spanish flu while tending to the sick. Nurses are badass. They are badass. So nurse Elizabeth McGregor, who had served in World War I, caught the disease after returning home and was buried with military honors. And nurse Egan, who also volunteered to help the returned soldiers who were suffering from the Spanish flu, uh, she caught the flu herself and died only six days later. Annie Egan, who was Catholic and knowing that she was dying, pleaded with authorities to be allowed a priest to administer the last rites for her as well as the other Catholics in the hospital. Mm -hmm. The request, however, was refused by authorities who were worried that the priest would spread the flu further into the community by visiting and then leaving the hospital. I don't know if it was this way back then, Uh but I remember specifically having conversations with, with like, the priest at my church when I was in high school because we, when you learn before you can be confirmed, you learn about all these rights, right? Things like that. And I think, uh, and I think I remember asking specifically like, what if you're in a situation where you can't get a priest? Right. And the idea being that because like with everything, uh huh, you make your own rules, I guess. Like if you were in a situation where you can't get a priest to do it, right. You could do it yourself to other people as a Catholic, like as a confirmed Catholic and like God, the idea being that God knows that there was no other option. So this will count. That makes sense. I've seen that in movies and TV shows, (laughs) which is how I base a lot of my knowledge. (laughs) So 
Miss Egan's final resting place can actually still be visited at the quarantine station in its only surviving cemetery. One tour guide told the Daily Mail that while some visitors do feel uncomfortable during encounters, many others have found them positive experiences. He recalls one particular incident when a guest suffering health problems from a recent motorbike accident immediately felt better upon entering the hospital ward. Quote, They instantly felt a feminine presence waft past, most likely a nurse, and they could smell sweet perfume. Over the next minute, their shakes stopped, their pain decreased, and they were suddenly able to bend down and touch their toes, something that they couldn't do before. Oh, that makes me so happy. I know. That really amazed me and showed me that our spirits are still trying to help people who are suffering, unquote. Isn't that nice? Several nurses and soldiers, as well as the spirit known as Matron, are said to be found in the hospital ward, while a mortician in a top hat, uh, nicknamed by the staff as Mr. Slimy, has been spotted walking around the grounds. Mr. Slimy is described as a handsy specter, a flirtatious mortician by the tour guides. <laughs> gross. <laughs> I literally have gross a handsy, after that. A handsy mortician. A handsy flirtatious mortician. Flirtatious is the wrong word. Gross. A handsy groping mortician. Yeah. It's not flirtatious if it's not wanted. Yeah, it's just bad. Gross. It's just bad. Don't do it. Stop it, slimy. Stop it, Stop Mr. It, slimy. slimy. Stop it, Mr. Slimy. In the gross. In the morgue itself, one visitor described his experience as, quote, well, Bob, the tour guide, was talking about history. It started to get cold, but weirdly only on my right side. No one was standing to the right of me. There was nothing but a door leading to the laboratory. A cold breeze passed through the door. I wasn't paying attention to Bob's story because I felt like someone was standing beside me. I whispered to Jace, their friend, about it, so he scanned his EMF, and suddenly there was a spike of energy. He told me to calm down, but I was this close to a breakdown. As minutes went by, I started to feel goosebumps on my right arm, and I could feel that someone was actually touching my arm. It was like a gentle caress, but definitely not human. I became uneasy after we went out of the morgue, and Bob noticed it. He smiled and said, the resident ghost liked you, didn't he? Really, Bob? (laughs) Unquote. (laughs) All I can think is how just the idea of it being a ghost versus a, a person immediately changes how we feel about the words gentle caress. <laughs> right? What Especially when fuck? made by a, a ghost named Mr. Slimy. <laughs> I mean, we don't for sure know that it was Mr. Slimy, but it probably was. Yeah. Um, and actually, the most common paranormal experience that I found that happened in the morgue was people reporting that they feel touched. Gentle, cl- gently caressed. Gently caressed. <laughs> by, a, by a cold, slimy presence. All in all, it is said that nearly 600 people are buried on the grounds of the Q station, though it's actually possible that the numbers are in the thousands, but that the discrepancy is due to lost records. That's, I mean, I feel like that's an area where lost records is totally legit. Yeah, I think that they actually, I can't remember what it was, but they said a very specific instance where the records were probably lost. And many of the graves on the property have been lost to time as well as the sites were leveled because of their proximity to the living quarters as well as the freshwater streams. Yep. So there are just dead bodies underneath the surface, but they don't know exactly where. Let's go a-digging. Let's go a-digging. It's time to dig up some graves. 
An unboxing, some might say. <laughs> there are. I like you. <laughs> <laughs> there are many ghosts that are sent to haunt the Q station in Sydney. But unfortunately, you'll have to take one of the ghost tours to find out more. Because they are very well guarded with the information that they allow online. And that is the, the Q station in Sydney, Australia. This almost makes me want to like tell Sean that I need to go to Australia instead of Japan. Like these are like a trip like this for us is like would be like a once in a lifetime yeah. style trip. Yeah. But Sean really wants to go to Japan. But well, that's so fucking cool. I know. That's yeah. so cool. I wa- had never heard of it before. So I was very excited that it kind of came up as a as a general thing on the Real Life Ghost Stories podcast. I think that it is very intriguing that we both accidentally went overseas this week. We did, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, that's fun. Um, on a skeptic scale, I'm going to give it a four and a half. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, I don't know why I don't want to give it an all out five. Because of Mr. Slimy? Yeah, maybe. maybe. You're, you're you know what? really put off by this I'm really... slimy mortician. <laughs> you're like, I don't want him to be real. Oh, okay, you know what? Actually, it's a five. I 100% believe <laughs> this place is haunted. You're right. I'm just, I'm, I'm wanting to give it a lesser rating because I'm grossed out, but it's a five. This is 100% haunted. Thank you. I also agree. I'm a five as well. Well, we started this week with a listener request. Yeah. If you have a listener request you yeah. would like to share, or, Do or. Do it. If you have a story of yours that you would like to share. Please. I know it. that this last week in Texas, I gave our business card to like four people. And by I, I mean, I gave my business card to Gina, who gave our business card to <laughs> other people. Gina was just like out there, like networking for us, like a boss. Gina's a boss ass bitch who supports us so much. And then she just, oh, yeah. she's like, Kayla, you got more cards. And at one point I was like, I don't have any more cards. So I went <laughs> and I, I got a bookmark out of the back, like the, the twin port yeah. society, like left us. I got a bookmark out of a book that I had in the back of my car to go give to somebody. <laughs> Look, we're legit, okay? We have bookmarks. We have bookmarks and cards. Um, so anyway, uh, if you have a paranormal story you would like to share that we would read at the end of the podcast, if you have a listener's like suggestion of something you'd like to hear about that we haven't covered, you can do so by emailing us directly, leftofskeptic at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, www.leftoskeptic.com, and click the Listener Stories tab at the po- top of the page. You can also click the link tree in our bio. You can choose to remain anonymous or include your name, whatever you are most comfortable with. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. You can also follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, at Left of Skeptic, and Facebook, at Left of Skeptic Podcast. Well, we're back at it. Back to the weekly stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh I guess I guess we'll just see you next week, huh? Yeah, can we just can we just say one one quick thing? Yeah. It was sixty something degrees a couple days ago. <laughs> and it's fucking snowing now. It's it's really just here. My mom sent me a picture, it's gorgeous and sunny. And she's only four and a half hours away. The Twin Cities is getting hit so hard. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. Okay, that makes me feel better. I thought it was just, my mom sending me these pictures. They're painting their back porch right now. Oh, screw your mom. I'm kidding. Do I not. love you. But Michelle is a saint. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take your anger out on my mother. <laughs> screw this snow. I hate it so much. <laughs> You know what we don't hate? You. We love and appreciate you so much. We do love and appreciate you so much. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Okay, okay bye. bye. <laughs>of Skeptic Podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Lind. This week's episode is edited by me, Brittany Lind. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc, and our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye! Screw I'm, you! I'm sorry I told your mom <laughs> to screw herself. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean it, Michelle. <laughs>